Before we start COVID calls today, I want to take a brief moment of silence to acknowledge the death of Dr. Paul Farmer, whose work on global health, medical anthropology, and social justice has no doubt impacted the listeners of this program, my guest today, and myself in deep and meaningful ways. So thank you uh, for coming today. Welcome to the 422nd episode of COVID Calls, a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Jacob Steer Williams. I'm a historian of public health at the College of Charleston in South Carolina, and I'm thrilled to be back for another week of guest hosting the program. This week on COVID Calls, I'll be speaking with some incredible individuals whose voices need to be heard as we continue to navigate the pandemic landscape, including clinicians, epidemiologists, and historians of medicine and public health, and in a special episode on Friday, a graduate student roundtable. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID calls with me throughout this week. Our live show is set for tomorrow, starting at 3.30 p.m. Eastern with Dr. Susan Jones and Dr. Pratik Chakrabarty. To find the program, go to COVID Calls YouTube TV channel. You can also hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as a podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere else you get podcasts. You can keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at COVID Calls, me at Steer Williams, or Scott at US of Disaster. Please help spread the word as this program continues. Like I said, it's the 422nd episode of COVID Calls, and feel free to send suggestions for guests and future topics to either myself or to Scott. As of today, February 21st, 2022, there have been 5,889,055 deaths reported from COVID-19 worldwide, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. The COVID-19 death rate for the U.S. stands at just shy of 1 million. 933,336 Americans. 65% of the U.S. population as of today has been vaccinated. There are 60 countries from the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center in the world with better vaccination rates. To put these rates into perspective in the U.S. alone, in my home state of South Carolina, we have 56% of the population vaccinated. In Massachusetts and New York, where my guests today work, vaccination rates are 78% and 75% respectively. But the numbers are just that, they're just numbers. In reality, the numbers individualized to life's lost, to parents, to partners, to neighbors, to coworkers, to friends, to children. As a way to humanize these numbers, and really getting lost in the numbers as we continue in this pandemic. Each day this week, I'll read a real life story or a story of advocacy for those who have been impacted by the pandemic. This is something Scott has done from the very beginning of COVID calls, and it's a powerful reminder. Each time I listen to Scott do one of these, or now that I have on my own, to think about and to individualize the way that we experience pandemics collectively at one level, and very individually at another. The story for today <clears throat> comes from journalist Aaron Curtis from the Lowell Sun from February 16th, 2022, just last week. Community mourns loss of a seven-year-old Groton girl due to complications from COVID-19. 
Pink ribbons decorate trees and mailboxes across Groton as a way to honor seven-year-old Cassidy Patrice Baraka, a town resident who died on January 18th due to complications from COVID-19, according to the girl's obituary. The photo of Cassidy included in the obituary shows the little girl's face glowing with a smile as she cradles in her arms a fluffy dog that appears to be smiling along with her. It was very hard not to smile when you met or ran into Cassidy because she smiled all the time and told hilarious jokes. The Badger Funeral Home obituary states, she was a kind, helpful, and inclusive spirit. She was very inquisitive and smart with just the bright amount of sass. Cassidy was described in the obituary as an avid dancer, singer, and gymnast who was in the Girl Scouts. The active and artistic youth colored and drew rainbows daily and loved to make pictures for people to thank them or to brighten their day. Cassidy is survived by her mother, Donna Baraka of Groton, and grandfather, Walter Mazeroski of Milford, as well as several other family members. Seven-year-old is also survived by her Pomeranian puppy, Delilah Cupcake, who she loved endlessly, along with four house rabbits, according to the obituary. Her place in our hearts will never be full. The, in, again, it states, Cassidy's death has brought heartache to the Groton community, which has been expressed by the dozens of posts about the seven-year-old on social media. She was a ray of light, said one woman on Facebook, always smiling. It's just not fair. As a result of the tragedy, the community has come together to honor Cassidy's life. Country Kids Child Development Center, where Cassidy was a former student, used Facebook to announce plans to set up a buddy bench outside the center that will display Cassidy's name. The Country Kids Child Development Center also revealed they intend to plant a tree on the center's property on Main Street. Cassidy was always a great friend to sit beside and turn to, and a tree planted will cherish her continued growth at a place where her roots have made such a profound and permanent impact on all those that loved her so very much, the center stated on Facebook. Because of Cassidy's age, the Middlesex District Attorney's Office issued this statement. The investigation is open and the cause and manner of death have not been ruled on. By statute, the district attorneys investigates all deaths of children under 18. According to the Cassidy's obituary, a memorial fund has also been set up in honor of the seven-year-old. The funds raised by the Cassidy by Cat, the Cassidy Patrice Baraka Rainbow Brigade will be used to support community service services earmarked for children in the Groton area who are in kindergarten to fourth grade. As of Monday night, they had raised $8,500. So my guests today, and let me bring them into our conversation. My first guest, Dr. Deborah Dorishow, is a medical oncologist at the Trish Cancer Institute at Mount Sinai, where she is Associate Program Director of the Hematology and Oncology Fellowship Program and Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. She also has a PhD in the History of Medicine and is Adjunct Assistant Professor of the History of Medicine at the Yale School of Medicine. Her research in oncology focuses on early phase clinical trials for patients with advanced solid malignancies, and her work in the history of medicine examines the history of mental health and children's health in 20th century America. And I highly recommend that you buy her amazing book, Emotionally Disturbed, 
A History of Caring for America's Troubled Children, which was published in 2019 with the University of Chicago Press. And Debbie, Deb didn't get the kind of big celebratory hug that we do at the History of Medicine conference uh, because of the pandemic. So I'm sending one out virtually. Over the past two years, she has been engaged in several large collaborations to better understand the impact of COVID-19 on people with cancer. My second guest today is Dr. Lakshmi Ganapathy, who is a pediatric infectious disease physician and the Associate Program Director of the Infectious Disease Fellowship Program at Boston Children's Hospital. Dr. Ganapathy is also an instructor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. Her clinical expertise is focused on the care of immunocompromised children. Her research expertise spans adolescent HIV, substance use, and global health, with much of her work centered on these issues in India. So I want to welcome you both, and thank you so much for joining me on COVID calls today. And I want to just start, before I bring you in, with thanking you both so much at a deeply personal level for the critical work that you've both done and continue to do both with patients every day during this ongoing crisis, but also for your public advocacy. You've both spoken out publicly in various forms, using your deep expertise and experience. And I'm just in awe. So thank you. And please just keep fighting. As so many people around the world talk about giving up, talk about COVID being over, we need you and everyone like you to keep fighting this fight for medicine, for public health, for social justice, for humanitarianism. And I'm reminded of this so much um, after Paul's passing today. So so thank you. Um, so I want to start with a, with a really basic question. Um, so uh, Debbie, let's start with you. Tell everyone where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation is there right now. Sure. So I am uh, calling from uh, my boring uh, New York City suburb, um, but I work in the on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, um, and it has certainly been a wild ride. Um, I started my job at my, Mount Sinai in August 2019, um, so I didn't have a long time there before the pandemic uh, began. We certainly uh, had to recalibrate things during Omicron, but um, cancer care is not something that can be put on hold. I'm really very proud of the way that my institution has handled the pandemic. Um, and I know that even during Omicron, we had to make a lot of patients had to make sacrifices, including not having family members accompany to them, them to appointments uh, to get their chemotherapy, for example. I'm delighted to say that as Omicron fades a bit, we're starting to roll back some of those policies um, because, frankly, most of what I spend my time doing is communicating and supporting patients and families been very challenging to do that um, without family members present in the room. Hmm. That's so interesting. I feel like that's like could be the rest of our discussion just that with that right there. You know, there was so much early in the pandemic about caregivers and access to grieving. And, and I feel like there was a moment when, when we were talking about grieving and, and lack of access to grieving, and then that quickly faded. Um, so what you just said is a really important reminder that that we need to keep thinking about this and keep studying it and, and really processing it. It's, you and know, that it's not just, you know, about people getting COVID, but that the pandemic itself is disrupting the provision of standard care. Yeah. 
Thanks, Debbie. It's good to see you. Lakshmi, tell us where you're calling from. So I'm calling from Massachusetts. Um, I live and work in Boston. I have a son who attends a public elementary school in Boston. And, you know, Debbie, as you were recounting your experiences as an oncologist, you know, as a pediatric infectious diseases physician who primarily sees uh, kids with cancer um, and other immunocompromising conditions, you know, I concur with a lot of your observations. I, I think during the Omicron surge, I've had to make way more clinical decisions about um timing of chemotherapy for kids, especially kids who really cannot delay cancer treatment and how best to do that safely if they also had COVID at the same time. Um, and what, what sort of therapies do we need to give them? I think I made far more decisions about that during the Omicron wave than I did during prior surges. Um, and um, and fortunately for us, um, uh, you know, we've we've felt the need to have parents. I mean, kids need to have their families. Kids need to have their parents with them. This is not something that they can battle on their own. And so we have very much protected family-centered care um, at our hospital. Um, but you are indeed right to say that many of the routine services have been disrupt disrupted. It's really interesting. So <clears throat> to, to jump into our questions here um, in our conversation, about a month ago, the last time I was on COVID calls, I joined Scott um, alongside some really great experts, global health specialists at Johns Hopkins, Cecilia Tamori, Murray, and historian Monica Green. And our discussion that, that, that evening was all about um, framing COVID-19 as endemic and how so many people were starting to call COVID-19 endemic. And, and we talked through um, and concluded really that that term and using that term about a month ago was both premature given the epidemiology of the pandemic and, and also was a political act. And, and, and what's been so interesting in, in the weeks that have followed from that discussion is that so many cities in the U.S. and so many places around the world, but particularly in the West, have started to scale back their COVID-19 response plans. You know, one of the things that I'm super interested in here is, you know, from, from a, from a public health perspective, but also from a very personal one, having two young children is that schools across the country are dropping mask mandates. Um, I just got an email before this conversation from my university saying that we are basically going away with all COVID mandates. And literally it was quite ironic. Within five minutes of getting that email from my university administration, I had two students from my senior seminar, undergraduate students, out of 11 who emailed me saying they're COVID positive and like, what should I do? The same day that, that the administration's like, we give up caring about COVID. Um, so this hits home really, really hard for me right now. And, and, I, and at the backdrop of all this is what I, what I can only characterize is a lot of misinformation or maybe lack of information about COVID-19 in children. So I kind of want to start there. You know, from all of the evidence that we have, the Omicron variant has struck children harder than previous variants, with a sharp rise in hospitalizations, particularly from December of 2021. There was a new study in the CDC, just kind of just trying to follow up from this phenomenon that we've seen on the ground from Friday, that said that children zero to four experienced the single largest increase in hospitalization rates. For both of you, that probably is not surprising. Um, we still don't have, however, authorization to get kids like my three-year-old COVID-19 vaccination. And also in the last week alone, if you just scan the headlines, 
about the relationship between COVID and children, there's widespread disagreement right now, at least in the media. And that's kind of where I want to start this in some ways about is, is long COVID dangerous for children? Is it not dangerous for children? Is Omicron decreasing in children hospitalization rates? Um, what are some of the long-term impacts of, of other problems with children who've had COVID? So Lakshmi, let me start with you. What can you tell us about your experience treating children with COVID-19 and, and, and particularly how the Omicron surge from late 2021 just differed on the ground than, than the previous uh, strains and previous parts of the pandemic? Sure, Jacob. Um, and before I do that, I actually want to pick up on a point that you talked about, and that's really pediatric vaccines. You know, when people talk about New York and Massachusetts, they often talk about how we are among the highly vaccinated states in the U.S. But really, you have to parse out what that looks like across age groups. And there are significant vaccine disparities, particularly in children. Um, and I can give you a snapshot of what that looks like in Massachusetts. I mean, if you look at five to 11 year olds, the media reports will tell you that Massachusetts is second highest in the country for this demographic. But really, what does that figure look like? It's 43%, which means more than 50% of kids who are five to 11 years of age are not fully vaccinated, even in highly vaccinated Massachusetts. Um, and, you know, and that coupled with the fact that everybody under the age of five is currently ineligible for uh, vaccines, I think, really sets up a precarious situation moving forward, especially as all of these protections are coming off. Um, and I think your observations are absolutely correct. And I think the epidemiology of pediatric COVID here in Boston certainly mirrored the national trends. Um, the peak COVID-19 related hospitalizations during Omicron definitely surpassed that of Deltas. Um, and we did see the largest increase in hospitalizations in children under the age of four. And I'd say that the first two weeks of January were perhaps the busiest weeks that we've actually experienced during this entire pandemic. And I, I certainly speak for myself and my colleagues. And by bu busy, I mean, really not just in the inpatient settings of the hospital, but really also in outpatient settings and the emergency room were just packed with kids. Um, and I think at one point our, in our hospital, really 50% of kids were there either with or for COVID. And that's the highest that I've actually seen in this um, pandemic. Um, and, um, and I think... What I will say is that this all having happening in the context of colleagues of mine falling sick as well. And I think we saw that across setting. We saw teachers getting sick. We saw hospital staff getting sick. And so I will say that the Omicron is mild narrative certainly was not felt at the health system level. It was not at all mild. And really, many of us were at least felt um, slammed. Yeah. So... I guess what I'm, thank you for sharing that. That's, that's really important. And, and, and I, I want to pick up on something that you tweeted and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to paraphrase it. But at some point in the last two weeks, um, on Twitter, you said something like, we're not listening to pediatricians. Like, why are we, why is no one listening to pediatricians? Like the people on the ground every day who are actually dealing with children sick from this disease. What, why do you think that is? Do you have any insight as to one, why, like, why aren't we listening to pediatricians? Like, certainly it's got to be part of a much broader, particularly in the, in the West, a much broader assault on like authority and expertise in public health and medicine. But, but I reckon there's something else behind 
what what you pointed your finger to, which is like we're not listening to pediatricians. Yeah, and it's truly been perplexing to me. I mean, I've seen so many media outlets, you know, talk about um, the developmental impacts of masks or the mental health impacts of masks, but rarely, if ever, do I actually see these media outlets inviting developmental pediatricians or pediatric mental health experts to actually opine on that. And instead, we have a whole range of experts who do not routinely work with children um, who are providing um, what I will surmise as studies that they have read, but really do not have that experiential um, perspectives that come um, and I actually want to understand why this is. I mean, I've spoken to colleagues and, you know, I don't know whether it's a function of the fact that we in general as pediatricians are not an outspoken group. We tend to be media shy um, or we've just all been so slammed in Omicron that we've just been so busy taking care of the kids that we've just not put ourselves out front to talk about these things. And and one reason I took to Twitter is because I realized and it really was at the urging of my husband, who's an adult infectious diseases physician, who said, if you do not up, that void is going to be filled by others who do not have that expertise. Um, and so I've been trying to understand, but really there should be nothing stopping the media. We're out here. And I, it's really been encouraging to see so many of my colleagues, you know, talk on Twitter about come approach us, talk to us, we're here, and really pointing to so many other colleagues that people can approach very readily. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I've, I've, this is why I'm so excited to bring the two of you together because I've been. This has been really bothering me the entire. This question about like Frank COVID and in, in, in kids, and 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 I think actually Debbie is the perfect person to um, think about this. No, I'm serious. So one of this like really big question I've had and it's just really been bothering me for like over two years now is why particularly in the West, although like, I want to talk to you about comparisons too with India, but if we just take the West, you know, Western Europe and, and North America right now, children, I would argue, have not been the figureheads for public health interventions. We haven't put up, you know, images, posters, photographs of children as the quote unquote face of the pandemic. We have not done that. And that's interesting to me as a historian of public health because there are so many examples from the late 19th century, at least, Western public health officials on just that. Scarlet fever, diphtheria, measles, polio. The list is very long, actually, for framing infectious diseases around children and the risk for children, both as a particular public health strategy try to get everyday people onto on board with new laws and mandates and changing everyday practices. And, and Debbie, in your book, Emotionally Disturbed, you show how children were at the center of changing psychiatric care and in institutions in the U.S. And I just wonder if you could reflect a little bit on your expertise. Why do you think that we have all of these examples in the recent past? Because I would argue these are all in the recent past that they haven't translated either for public health officials or in the broader public for centering the pandemic around children. That's a, that's a big question. I, I will um, start by actually just 
connecting back to what Lakshmi uh, mentioned, because my mother is a pediatric cardiologist in D.C. And, uh, you know, a month or two ago, she, we were comparing notes on clinic days. And she said, gosh, like almost every kid I saw today has gotten COVID. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. And she was like, no, it's not. Why would that be interesting? They're, they all have COVID. And I like who work at a large hospital with a large pediatric, you know, uh, department really had very little idea of the impact. Um, so um, history. So, you know, as you say, Jacob, I think, you know, children have been utilized as figureheads for garnering sympathy and especially raising money when it comes to public health campaigns and, you know, beginning in the 19th century and extending well into the 20th century. If you think about, you know, stamps with images of children fighting tuberculosis, for example, or, you know, images of, of uh, children in iron lung machines uh, with polio and so on. So this idea of them as being vulnerable and deserving of sympathy um, and then using that to sort of coalesce public support around this. Um, I, I made a very depressing conclusion in my book that I think may be applicable here. One thing that I noticed in the history of children's mental health was that we really went from a place where children who were abnormal, considered abnormal or considered deviant in some way were really considered everybody's problem everybody's, it's not everybody's problem, everybody's responsibility. Um, and there was a real sense of, of needing to help these uh, children on a communal level. So when you look at who was funding, for example, these intensive uh, small institutions I wrote about, because everybody who read my book as I was writing it said, well, who was paying for this? Well, it turns out the community was paying for it. So, you know, for example, community chests, which have now become sort of coalesced into United Way, were a major source of support for children's physical and emotional health. Enormous, uh, you know, county, state, and and federal funds were apportioned for the purposes of children's health. We had a huge children's bureau funded by the federal government, really with with tentacles in every state and and really very robust programming. And I think that there is this sense of not only children are good for fundraising, right, because everybody gets TV, not just kids, but but there really is that sort of a, a collective sense of community responsibility. And I felt that, you know, toward the end of my book, when I was talking about how children's mental health care has really become extremely fractured, um, about perhaps a sense of loss of that collective responsibility. And um, and I do wonder if that is playing a role here. This idea that, well, uh, you can do what you want with, with your children, and I'll do what I want with my children. Um, I think the problem here is, you know, and I only sur I survived one philosophy class in college, but, um, you know, the, the idea that you can do what you like as long as you don't hurt others. I think the problem here is that without this sense of collective responsibility, the vulnerable become even more vulnerable. And so, you know, my parents, who are both physicians in their 70s, after two years, 
finally caught COVID. Well, being fully vaccinated, most likely because of all of my mother's patients having COVID. And that just, again, it's a, you know, we, we live in a very, very hyper-connected world and, and what impacts one impacts many. Um, and so I think the loss of this sense of collective responsibility and community, uh, what we owe to one another as members of a shared community um, may be in a way uh, one of the factors driving this change. Yeah. And, you know, that's um, thank you. Thank you for that insight. I mean, I think you're absolutely spot on and I think it's connected. To, it, 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 it's part of some big set of cultural and political connections that are happening or have evolved in the U.S. in the last at least 50, maybe 75 years. But it's it's no surprise that if we take take your your insight here, that there's been a lack of like commitment to community. And caring for children is an extension of the argument of caring for community. I mean, think about like the debates we still have in the U.S. about mask wearing. Public health officials and people probably like the three of us have, have made the argument that wearing a mask is a sign of a, your humanitarianism and your care for other people in the community. You're not doing it for a selfish reason to protect yourself, but to protect people in your community. And, and, and that hasn't been the message by large swaths of the American public. And, and so I think those are part of the conversation. I look around in, in my community, for example, and I, and I think about um, huge debates that are happening about school of choice. And they're the exact ones that you just mentioned, Debbie. They're like, I should be able to do with my kids whatever I want, and you can do with your kids whatever you want. It's not about building a sense of community for our collective children. And, and so, um, Maybe something has just culturally changed in how we view our relationships with other people that's, that's, that's led to this moment in some ways for us not to center children during this pandemic. Well, it's almost funny because you think of all of these past public health campaigns that we learn about and how really the idea of doing something different, changing your uh, daily mode or your health practices or whatnot is really perceived as patriotic. So aside from children's health, I actually uh, wrote a, a paper about the history of uh, premarital syphilis testing laws, which were uh, alive and well until uh, DC was the last to lose its law in 2013. And uh, were in every state uh, starting in the 40s and 50s. And one way that these were sort of sold, these laws were sold to the public, because there was a huge public health campaign to promote them, um, was with pictures of newborn babies saying, this is the future of our country. You know, we don't want to, to injure these um, these innocents, right? This whole idea of innocence. And uh, innocence, TS, rather than CE. And so this idea that you might need to do something inconvenient, but in that way, it is actually patriotic, just like, you know, rationing during uh, World War II. Um, and so it's interesting to me now that that same dialogue has really flipped Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. So, Lakshmi, what do you make of this 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 story of like two historians of medicine and public health trying to trying to like unravel where how we we may have gotten here in, in probably very unsophisticated ways, at least on my part. Um, what do you make of this from like your experience on the ground? You know, you're you you've been dealing with COVID patients and families with COVID, and probably some of them, I'm guessing, and correct me if I'm wrong, but they they probably came into that clinical setting 
believing this narrative that COVID doesn't really affect kids or my kid probably isn't going to get sick with COVID or die from COVID. So what has it been like to encounter that, what we might call that like clinical cognitive dissonance on the ground? Yeah, well, I, you know, I want to talk about how this sort of been brewing in the background. Way before COVID, there has been a rise in the anti-vax movement that has led to resurgence of measles, right? That was, this is all happening in the background of a society that has just, that I guess is crumbling. <laughs> um, and so it has just made all of these conversations so much harder because these are the same parents who also did not believe, for example, in other types of vaccinations, um, which is why really any sort of undermining of um, COVID vaccines right now really has far-reaching impacts. And it has been truly, truly troubling for me to see physicians really undermining the COVID-19 vaccine for children because I don't think they recognize that they're actually playing with fire here. Um, and we are going to see the effects reverberate, not just for COVID-19, but many other childhood preventable illnesses. Um, so I think, I think all of this really, I think this is where your perspective as historians is so important to document all of this, to make sense um, of everything that's happening because we are having the conversations. I mean, people are telling us about what they're hearing in the media and it's just been fascinating to me. And I've often, you know, very honestly accused the media of being complicit with some of these messages that has made the life of pediatricians like my, myself that much harder because then we spend hours really sitting and talking about why something someone said on a TV show should not be believed and we as physicians should be believed. And really these battles are happening in real time. Um, and, you know, I really, I really appreciate the point about collective responsibility. I mean, I think we just have to recognize that this is a respiratory viral pathogen. It's as simple as that. If you get it, you're spreading it to others. Um, and really the societies that have taken this on as a collective challenge have really done the best. And that is true. And that is true of the Asian societies because they've just, there's no argument about universalization of public health tools. There's no argument that everybody just has to do this together. Um, and, and really doing it together is really the most important way of, of protecting the most vulnerable who cannot protect themselves or use these tools in the way that others can. Um, and so I think both of your perspectives from that end and really, where is that collective responsibility really historically and where we are right now? I think those perspectives are very important to record. So have you have you seen if we compare like your your everyday reality in Boston, but then a lot of your research is in India, have you yeah. seen like children figuring differently in the media response to COVID in, in those two countries? So Jacob, you know, I I have to be honest here in the sense that I have not traveled to India and India has a different 
can of worms entirely. I mean, their kids have not gone to school at all for two years. And I think that's a very different scenario. Um, what I can compare to, which which I'm actually more intimately familiar with in some part because my parents still live in Singapore and I trained in Singapore is really how the Asian societies have dealt with this. And I will say that at every point during surges and even after surges, when they recognize that their pediatric vaccines have not caught up, they've actually not dropped masks in schools at all because they recognize that a significant proportion of kids are just under-vaccinated. We just have to work on that. And so the, the principles that have been applied in these societies that have put children first have been very, very different. And I think these societies have also recognized that to protect children, you have to control community transmission. And so, um, so I think those principles at least have been consistently communicated in the media. It has been consistently communicated by leaders. Um, and I think that clear communication has really helped. So, yeah, that's super interesting. So I wanna go back really quickly to, to something that you said, cause I'm super fascinated by it right now. And, and what you said was, we're having to have more discussions with parents about vaccines and not just COVID, but just vaccines in general for kids. And I wonder if what you're seeing and you anticipate is one of the consequences of, of this disaster. Is that going to be in the next few years or the next decade or within our lifetime? We're just going to have more skepticism about the whole range of childhood vaccinations that, 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 have, that have become normalized. And that this is actually going to lead to a step back in denormalizing those vaccines. Is that what you anticipate potentially struggling with? I mean, I think it's conceivable. I mean, the amount of misinformation that's out there uh, with regards to COVID-19 vaccines is, is astounding. Um, and, and it's just almost impossible to keep up with the speed of this disinformation, right? Because it just gets transmitted through WhatsApp or, you know, social media. And, and, and I think that's what we're really up against. So it's certainly conceivable, but, but maybe a terrain that we enter into. Yeah, that sounds, um, that sounds like something that like we need to be talking to medical students about right now. And we need to like public health authorities need to be getting on, you know, so much of what, um, you know, disaster scholarship is about and studying, you know, epidemics and pandemics is about is about how they have long tails and they have impacts long after they're framed temporally or geographically. And, you know, I think that that's one issue that I hadn't actually thought about. And now I now I want to start convincing people to go research that and get on top of it in real ways, because it sounds extremely important. So I want to um, I want to talk about um, patients a little bit. Debbie, in, in your work, um, so much of I think what drives um, the kind of research that you do is trying to center patients and patient experiences and patient narratives, both in your historical work and your clinical work. And I want to ask you a kind of like really probably unfair question, but I'll ask it anyway, is why, why is recording the stories right now of everyday people and patients in particular so important, whether that be the, the stories of kids and Lakshmi, I want you to jump in on that too, or the stories of clinicians. But I, I really do feel, and it's been very eerie for me to, to read every day about this pandemic and to, 
to not see those voices, the everyday voices, you know, for historians like you and I, Debbie, like we're part of, you know, we've inherited a generation of scholarship that has demanded history from below and in, in the history of medicine, patient narratives and patient experiences. And somehow I think we, we're not doing a very good job of that right now. So can you just talk about that and talk about, you know, what your, what your ideas and feelings are on that? You know, we just have a very, very nasty tendency as humans to uh, preserve the thoughts and opinions and actions of those in power. Um, and by that, I usually mean white men. But, you know, just in general, people who are in charge, those are the records that are preserved. And so when I go to an archive, I see minutes of the board of trustees, right? And and then you have to look through those minutes and find out, are they talking about any kids there? You know, do they, do you really hear any bit of the day to day of what's going on? But the problem is that it's all about what kind of information we save and what we prioritize saving. Um, and I think that often, and this is why there are not a lot of historians of uh, children's health out there, um, although there are a growing number of us, is that it's, it's really hard to get at what kids experienced and what they thought. Um, and I can tell you that every time I found any shred of that in archives or in published materials, it was absolutely thrilling. And you know, we always say this is, it's mediated by adults' voices because the adults chose to record it or preserve it. Um, but I think that not only with kids, but just regular folks, right? I didn't become a historian because I wanted to memorize the battles of the Civil War. And in fact, I'm, I'm sorry to say that I know very little military history. I thought it was really interesting to get out what regular people thought and, and felt and experienced in the past. And that's why it's so critical that we preserve those records. I almost wonder if things like comment sections in newspapers may become really incredible primary sources in the future. That, of course, you know, favors adults. When we talk about things like the effects, developmental effects of masking on children, what do kids think? I can tell you my niece and nephew have no issue wearing masks and feel very safe doing so. I don't know if that's representative or not, but why don't we ask them how they feel? Why don't we record and keep for posterity how they are experiencing this? I can only imagine that you two as parents get a lot of artwork, for example, that you can't possibly keep every piece of or put every piece of on the fridge and probably have to recycle a few items here and there. But for example, I'm sure there's writing and art that's being produced right now by children that expresses what it's like to grow up right now. And that's the kind of stuff we should really seek to preserve. Because if we went back at, you know, on the Wayback Machine and looked at Twitter 20 years from now, it would probably be a bit of an echo chamber. It's really a, a small, relatively small number of loud voices. So I think we have to commit, you know, we have multiple uh, organizations like the National Library of Medicine dedicated to collecting primary sources for the future, but we need to think expansively about how we do this and about whose voices are being collected. Yeah, thank you. My, my seven-year-old just uh, had a birthday and uh, for his birthday in his classroom, all of the children, his, his peers, they all made like a little happy birthday card. It's their little tradition whenever somebody has a birthday. And they all made a special picture, you know, about their 
their relationship with Langston. And I would say half. So out of 15, half of them, um, and these were things that just children produced un, unmitigated, I think, um, the children had masks on in, in the pictures. And, and I don't know how to make sense of that, but I think you're absolutely right that that's the kind of ephemera that I, that I promise that in a hundred years, historians are going to want. And, and they probably won't have because those are the kind of things that don't get preserved. But Lakshmi, I want to ask you, like, is, is your hospital doing anything to preserve what's, what's happening right now? That's a really good question. You know, the child life specialists, I think, um, would be the best people to touch base with. And, and, and you've actually given me a question to bring back to the hospital to actually ask. But Debbie, I really appreciate a point that you made that, you know, I very much hope that whoever is recording these times is, is really recording the voices that are not being heard and that there's a very intentional effort to do that. Because you are right to say that the overwhelming voices that are represented um, and are the loudest are those of white people when it's very clear and we have to have the frame that this pandemic has been unequal from the very beginning. There is no working around that. It is an unequal pandemic. It has not affected us all equally. And and the communities that are disproportionately impacted, and by that I mean Black, Latino, Indigenous communities, um, individuals who, and communities that have disabilities and are immunocompromised, these are the communities that I really hope we are recording these experiences Um and when we talk about children, you know, Jacob, it's often um, dismaying to me that we often, and this is why the stories are important, because we really only talk about the small number of kids who have died, or only 200 kids have died, or, you know, they represent 0.2% of deaths. But really, these numbers do not give you the full breadth of experiences or the depth of experiences that children have gone through. Um, and I really want to make a point there because I think the lens that we are inter interrogating these experiences is very important. And as a pediatrician, I can tell you that I think the broader public and perhaps even physicians who do not routinely work with children may not have a foundational lens of pediatrics, which is that there is no such thing as an acceptable number of deaths in pediatrics. It, there just is no such thing. Um, and so any premature loss of life is tragic, especially if it is preventable. And so as a discipline, we very much aim to decrease preventable deaths, no matter how small that number is. Um, and very many of us lobby for funding, um, uh, increased childhood funding, even if a particular disease really only affects a small number of children. And I think, I think that lens is very important to capture at this moment. Um, and again, like I said, I think the lens of Black, Latino, and Indigenous kids is very important to capture because, because they have they have suffered disproportionate hospitalizations and deaths. And among more than 150,000 children in our country who have lost a primary caregiver, 65% of them are Black, Latino, and Indigenous kids. So what are those lived experiences look like? Um, and I really hope we are being intentional in not erasing those experiences, but are being very intentional in recording them. 
Yeah. Wow. That's <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think while you're, while you're, while you're both talking, you know, I'm, I'm trying to like scale those micro politics of my own community. So I'm part of an oral history um, group in Charleston that's trying to collect stories from the pandemic and, and we're trying to do it in all of the responsible ethical ways that you're talking about here. And it's really hard, but then I think like trying to scale that up to a global stage when like we're basically abandoning most COVID protocols in the U.S., while most of the global South still ha doesn't have like a clear future for vaccination. So, like, I think the global politics of this, uh, not just of 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 the experience, but of the recording of the experience, is is really fraught right now with a number of of ethical problems. Um, I want to in the in the last ten minutes that we. Have, I want to talk about some other ethical problems, and that is of testing. And in Lakshmi, in uh, in September, a few months ago of 2021, you wrote a piece in the Globe about COVID testing in schools, and and that was right before the Omicron surge. So we've had a lot more discussion about in the in the broader public in the U.S. about testing, and particularly as we see a lot of school districts moving away from masks. Some are talking about doing more routine testing. Some are not talking about doing any testing going forward. Where where do you think we are with this discussion over testing and, and what do you think we'll see in the next next few months? Yeah, thanks Jacob for reading that piece. You know, to be very honest, we um, actually wrote that piece anticipating a surge, even if not a new variant. Um, and so I think many of the principles there still very much apply, even if we do not have a new variant. Um, and I think, what we advocated for was testing as part of a multi-layered strategies. And I think we've ac accumulated data on this. I can certainly speak about our own school's experience where 90% of our kids were signed up for school surveillance. Um, and our data and experiences very much mirrored that of the state's data. When community transmission was slow, we did not have that many positive pools. But in Omicron, that shot up. We had multiple positive pools, but it was good to know that because it, it allowed us to keep our school open um, and uh, in the presence of universal masks and other mitigation strategies, really our in-school transmission was low and we were very diligent about doing our own contact tracing. So that's really just my school's perspective, but I think it has panned out in a couple of other studies as well. Um, and it's certainly consistent with a lot of studies that have been done globally. Now, as community transmission drops, I think schools that are highly vaccinated and highly vaccinated communities are making that calculus to drop masks um, and are have already dropped masks, as you have said. Um, and as these schools do that, I actually think it's vital that universal testing is not dropped um, because that can actually yield very good data because we're entering this new territory where we're not going to have a key mitigation measure and potentially what could be because we're also dropping community masks we may not have a clear decline in our Omicron cases. And then with BA2 looming, we may really have what is more of a prolonged tail where community transmission is slow, but sort of not that low. 
Um, and so I think we really need to collect the data and can't have an ostrich buried in the sand approach to all of this. I think um, universally testing students and doing robust contact tracing actually offers us a roadmap for how to do this when community mm-hmm. is low. So I think from that standpoint, it's important to continue doing that testing. Um, the other thing is that Testing is even more important because we simply have a far more transmissible strain. It's as simple as that. You know, as a mother to a child who goes to a school where more than 80% of kids are Black and Latino and and qualify for free school lunch, I will say that school has been a reliable place for our kids to actually get testing because you and I will recognize that we have significant testing disparities. I mean, go to CVS or Walgreens and a box of Binax tests are still costing $14. And sure, the Biden administration has mailed out four tests, but I do not see a sustainable plan for that testing or how we are going to universalize testing across the population. And so school has really been a reliable place where we have been able to do this and kids have had that access to testing. So so it would be a shame to drop all of that. And the third thing is that I think we have to recognize that we still have vulnerable kids in our midst. Um, and some people are proposing, and it makes no logical sense to me, that really only the vulnerable kids who are at high risk should get tested routinely. Well, you know what? By the time they test positive, that's too late. That's exactly what you are trying to prevent. And what you're trying to prevent is transmission to the vulnerable kids, which is why everybody else around them needs to get tested routinely. Doesn't that make sense? It just makes perfect logical sense to me. So I, I truly am perplexed by some of these um, a, a protocols that some people are arriving at. Um, and then the third thing is that testing becomes even more important now because we have therapies which work best when offered early. Um, and then includes to vulnerable kids who are 12 years and above who qualify for monoclonal antibodies um, who may not have community testing. So I think for a lot of different perspectives, if you're dropping the masks, we really should not be in this rush to drop everything. If anything, I think this needs to happen gradually and in a staged manner where we collect the data and are being thoughtful about it. But if you're dropping the mask, my personal view is that you shouldn't drop the testing. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm also reminded here of like what is not an uncommon um, cultural response to pandemics which is like this very quick um, push towards amnesia. Like we were, we're literally still at, across the country, yes, rates are dropping for hospitalizations and deaths from, from COVID-19. That's wonderful and great. And I think we can all be pleased about um, that. But, but of course, that's just a st- statistical phenomenon. There's still kids every day that are, that are getting sick and there's still people dying, thousands of people every single day from this disease. And from what we've seen in the last two years, we've had a new strain every few months. So, you know, the idea of just like dropping masks and dropping testing right now, when we just have so much uncertainty of what the next six months or a year, if if we, for example, have a year more's worth of data and rates continue to decline and we see antigen turnover, and we see BA2 decrease in transmissibility and virulence, yes, maybe that is a point where, where we decide to change our public health strategies. But this seems totally reactionary. And, and the consequences 
I think are pretty profound. So I want to bring in Debbie here and, and ask a question about testing and from your experience with cancer patients. So I've been reading a lot. You know, it's, I, I don't think it's something that's been giving, given much media attention of the relationship between COVID and cancer, because at some level, maybe they don't seem too related. But but you've written on this and, and you're, you know, that's the, it's literally the convergence of where you are right now. Um, the American Association for Cancer Research came out um, recently with a report on this issue, of the impact of COVID and COVID testing on cancer research. And I just wondered where, what you can tell us about the relationship, the overlaps, what some of the problems that you're seeing that are, that are entangling maybe is the, the too jargony academic word, but um, between, between COVID and cancer. Sure. So, I mean, I think we can think about this in a few different ways. People with cancer, first of all, cancer is an equal opportunity uh, opponent, right? Anybody can get cancer. I primarily take care of people with, uh, with lung cancer. It turns out that literally all you need to get lung cancer are lungs. One out of five of the patients I see have never picked up a cigarette in their lives. And if they have Nobody deserves to get cancer, right? So, um, and yet this is an extraordinarily vulnerable group of patients. And so we've learned that people with cancer are far, far more likely to get COVID, to get uh, very ill from COVID requiring intensive unit, uh, intensive care unit uh, level of care and far more likely to die from COVID. Um, unfortunately, I have had the opportunity to watch this happen firsthand to many of my and my colleagues' patients. I spent a lot of time on uh, the COVID service during the first surge in 2020, and it really felt like there was very little we could do when somebody with, uh, when an adult with advanced cancer came in with COVID. Um, very, very hard to help them get better, and we just saw a tremendous amount of death. Um, even so, vaccination continues to be a, a major topic of discussion in my clinic. I ask all of my patients if they're vaccinated and I let them know about the, the data showing their greatly increased risk of, of, of death and hospitalization. We know, for example, that people with lung cancer, people with blood cancers like leukemia and lymphoma are far, far more likely to have these severe outcomes than even people with other types of cancer. Um, and yet, uh, I, it has been a difficult journey. You know, I have patients with tremendously impacted lung function where if, even if they got a mild case of COVID, they would be at very high risk of death. And, uh, one of my patients told me a few weeks ago, you know, Dr. Dorsha, I'm just, I'm really scared of getting sick from the vaccine. And we talked about, you know, feeling badly for 24 or 48 hours versus the risk of dying. But for some of my patients, I have been able to convince them to get vaccinated. And for others, I respectfully ask at every visit because I just, I wouldn't feel right to stop trying to convince them to do it because I say to them, you know, you are coming here every three weeks for chemotherapy which makes you feel really rotten, is causing all kinds of side effects. And we're doing this so that we can help you feel better and live longer, and in some cases, cure your cancer. So the last thing I would want is for some stupid virus to, to negate all of that, 
right? Um, the other thing we've seen, in addition to increased risk, is, to, is tremendous disruption in cancer care. So the work that I was involved with, especially early on in the pandemic, was looking at the disproportionate impact on cancer care, of, of cancer care uh, disruption on uh, folks from minority backgrounds. And we, we did a nice little cohort study collaborating with colleagues in Boston and found that patients who were Black and self-identified as Black and Hispanic were far more likely to have delays in their care, for example, um, and to you know have their cancer care disrupted than white patients. Um, I've certainly seen that on the ground. I'm very, uh, very fortunate to work at a center where probably more than half of my patients are non-white um, and uh, have been able to see some of the ways in which you know socioeconomic status, race. Uh, education and, and num numerous other sociocultural factors interact. Um, for example, our patients have to get tested before getting chemotherapy. Um, luckily, now we have home testing and people can go get their, uh, we can send people to their homes. But if you live in Staten Island, you're not going to be able to take the ferry and come two hours to get your pre-chemo testing. Lastly, and I'll just briefly say that we know that uh, screening for cancers has diminished profoundly. And it turns out that screening is probably one of the most important advances we've made in cancer care in the 20th century. Um, and especially in my area, lung cancer screening has is tremendous um, and has not been around for that long. And we are starting to see patients, not starting, the last year and a half, uh, to see far more patients coming in with later stage disease, which is no longer curable. Um, and so it's been tremendously humbling um, to try to continue providing standard quality cancer care in this setting. I'm just blown away. You know, we're, we're out of time, so I'm going to I'm going to wrap things up. But I'm just, you know, really blown away by both of your brilliance and and both of what I hear in your voices and in your words of just how much you're fighting on an everyday basis with patients. And it's, it's so remarkable. And just thank you. I don't know what else to say, but we need to know more about that. So I'm so glad to have this conversation with both of you. And, and so much of what, what you've talked about today is, 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 is rather hidden in our everyday discourse. And, you know, I think that needs to be addressed as well. So please join join me in thanking De Dr. Deborah Dorishow and Dr. Lakshmi Ganapathy. And please follow them on Twitter, read their work, and and listen to, to what they have to say as this, this continues to unfold. So thank you both so much. Please join me tomorrow on COVID calls at 3.30 p.m. Eastern. And my guests will be Dr. Susan Jones and Dr. Pratik Chakrabarty. Thanks, everyone.